Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. You know, when Cindy and I first got married, uh, we were uh, part of this little Baptist church in her hometown in Holland, Michigan. And uh, we worked in children's church. And, uh, you know, in children's church, you sing all these songs to help the kids learn the Bible. And one of them went like this. Maybe some of you guys remember this song. Twelve men went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Anyone know this song? It's just you and me, babe. So you're not going to be able to sing along. But this, this song had hand gestures that went with it. You know, so it was twelve men went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and tall. Some saw grapes in cluster fall. Some saw God was in it all. But ten were bad and two were good. How about that? <laughs> So where we come to in the scripture today is it's telling this story that we sang in children's church at Rose Park Baptist Church in Holland, Michigan. And Numbers 13 and 14 uh, note a, a major turning point in uh, the Israelites' journey. So remember, if, you know, if you've been with us, or let me just catch you up, that you know, God has miraculously enabled the uh, Israelites to escape Egypt. And they've spent about a year encamped at the base of Mount Sinai where God is giving them the Ten Commandments and other laws and establishing kind of like how they'll have a relationship with him and how, um, how they will worship him and kind of the values of this new community that he's making with his people. And it's all to set them up to go to this place that he's promised them. We call it the promised land. Uh, it's a place that they'll be able to call home because they were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And now they're going to have a place for themselves, a place where they can thrive and live according to uh, God's design in a place that God has picked for them that is part of his design. It's the place where it's, called, it's Canaan where Abraham and Sarah and Jacob are buried, so their ancestors are there. And in Numbers 13, they've kind of made it to its southern border, Kadesh Barnea. And I don't know if we have a map for that today. Is that? Yeah. So uh, it's noted by the circle, the yellow circle, and they're right at the southern border of this land. And from here, Moses is going to choose um, one leader from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if we had time, we would read all their names in chapter 13. I know that many of you have read this section before, but I bet you can only really remember two names out of the list. Maybe some of you can remember more, but anyone want to take a stab to shout it out? One of the two? 
Joshua and Caleb. That's right. And we've seen Joshua before as we've been going, as we were going through Exodus. He was the military leader that kind of appeared in the battle at Rephidim. And as Bob just read, the 12, these 12 spies, you can take, okay, the map is down. The 12, they're, they're assigned to kind of do recon in the land, to scout it out, to see what the land is like. What, what are the people like? Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they many? Are they, few? Are they few? Is the land fertile? Can we grow crops there? And so in stealth, they move through the region uh, for over a month, completely undetected, and they find that the land is ideal. And the fruit there is so gargantuan that uh, they bring some of it back and they have to carry it on a pole, you know, like the grapes are so big. There. And they describe what they found using an idiom of the day. It's in verse 27. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. That's a way of describing how wonderful this land is. And so it's, it's going to be just what God had promised them. And then all the problems begin with, with one simple word. What do you think that word is? But, verse 28, it's great land, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And so then they list all the obstacles there. The, the city, the, there's these really big cities there. It's densely populated by the, all these other tribes of people, and some of them are extra large people. They're descendants of Anak. So if you were there... In the crowd, you would, you would sense or you would see the mood of the people uh, kind of swing here. It's like, this is going to be a wonderful land. It's, it's got this giant fruit. It's fertile. It's awesome. But, man, it's going to be really, really hard. And so the people, obviously, they, they get worked up about this. And so Caleb has to quiet them down before he speaks to them. In verse 30, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. And then immediately, the ten, the ten bad spies, they contradict him in verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. So there's this back and forth. There's like this debate, this public debate. And then look at how the Bible describes what was happening among them in verse 32. And they, that is the ten, spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They're just talking about how wonderful it was. And now they're giving a bad report of the land. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. So bad report is reflected in a couple ways. One is... And they're not exactly lying here, right? They're, but, but they are taking facts and they're spinning them into something that isn't true. So they're, they're making contradictory statements here. It's amazing, fertile land, but it devours people. And then part of this bad report is they're misleading the people and they're using fear to do it. And so all the people that are listening, they're, they're terrorized by this. And part of the bad report is, uh, is that they're slandering or they're whispering against uh, Joshua and Caleb. They're assassinating their character. 
And it doesn't take long for this to affect everybody. People, the people are persuaded by this negativity and they rebel in Numbers 14.1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. And then going in verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our Does this sound familiar? Why, our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, you know, we should choose another leader and go back. So um, we've talked about the BTE club as we've gone through, as we went through Exodus and Moses' story, you know, the back to Egypt club. They're, uh, they're back again and they're recruiting new members, evidently. And uh, Moses and Aaron, they just fall, fall face down and they start praying. And then Joshua and Caleb get up and, and they kind of take over. In verse 7, the land we possessed, that we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing, flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So, after such a great and rousing speech, do you, do you think that the people get motivated? Do, do Joshua and Caleb turn the tide? Uh, verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. <laughs> it wasn't very motivating to them. And, you know, if you've been traveling with us through Moses' life, you know, you know this is like, this is repetitious. And uh, this is, it's kind of like, same story, different day, right? And, and God has had enough of them. And the time for talking is over. It's, it's okay to vent, but they've crossed the line here. And so God doesn't even address the mob. He's done with them. And he talks directly to Moses in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've performed among them? And once again, as he's done before, he offers to Moses um, to wipe them all out and start over with Moses. And uh, Moses prays to God here. And he, again, he, like he's done before, he says, God, think, think of your reputation here. This is Moses' heart coming through. They, if, if you do this, then what people will say, these surrounding nations that know the story of how we've ended up here, they will say that you couldn't do what you said you were going to do, that you weren't powerful enough. And then he asked God to recall his words from, uh, that go way back to Exodus 34. And we, we noted this as we went through, but God's God describes his own character in Exodus 34. And here Moses repeats it to him. Almost word for word in verse 17. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. But in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And this word where he says, uh, in accordance with your great love, we... We, we studied that word when we went through uh, the story of Ruth. 
The, the Hebrew word there is hesed. It's like a loyal love. It's, it's a unique word for God's love. That, that you, can't, you can't stop God from loving you. His love is loyal beyond what you could do to him. He still loves you. And so God does say, I will forgive them. But it's not over. And this is really, really important. In verse 21, he says, I'll forgive them. But nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory in the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, which is, it's, it's kind of like, it's an idiom for like, um, like we say, I've told you a thousand times. Uh, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who treated me with contempt will ever see it. I'm like, let that sink in. That what God is saying here is, I will forgive this, but I'm not going to remove all the consequences. And um, now Caleb and Joshua here are accepted. Uh, Caleb is described as having a different spirit, that he follows God with all of his heart. And both he and Joshua will make it into the promised land. But, but, but for the others, they're going to pass in the wilderness as they wander around. Verse 28, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fail, will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. And so God's saying, the grumblers, I'm, I'm going to give them exactly what they asked for. They won't have to enter the land. Their children will but they won't. And so in doing this, God is making, he's granting the request that they kept, that they wanted all along, that they kept repeating, right? Let's, let's just go back. Only he won't let them go back, but they won't go forward. Does that make sense? And God says, you're going to wander for 40 years in the desert. Now, why 40? Some have said that it's one year for each day they were in Canaan as spies. I don't know. But some of you have probably heard this and maybe not put all the pieces together before. Maybe most of you have. I don't know. But you've heard how, like, the journey that the Israelites had to make from Egypt to the Promised Land is really only an 11-day walk. So they should have made it in 11 days. But it took them 40 years. So this kind of explains why. Remember for the first year, they're just kind of getting their act together at the base of Mount Sinai. They're learning how to have a relationship with God. They're, they're learning how to live free from Pharaoh's grip on them. This is what life with God looks like. Here are the values you will govern yourself by. Here's how you will encounter me. And now you can worship me freely through the mechanism that I provided in the tabernacle, right? And now they, they've traveled to this border, the, the southern border of Canaan, but they, don't, but they don't enter. 
And the reason why is they're going to they're leave this spot and they're going to wander in the desert for 39 years to allow the adult generation to die by attrition. And obviously, that's bad news, right? <laughs> and uh, verse 39, when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. But, but there's more. And this, this shows, again, like just how much they don't get it. In verse 40, early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we're ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we've sinned. Okay, so they've confessed and God's told them, you're not going to go into the land. And yet they go up to this high point. They, they look across and they come up with a plan to take the land. They say, well, we confessed it. And they're insisting with God, now we're ready. We've repented and now we're ready to fight. But Moses warns him. He says, look, you, you guys forfeited that right. Don't do it. God said don't do it. You're going to be defeated. Now, once again, do they listen? How many, how many of you think they go, oh, now we finally get it? Should raise your hand. No, they get it handed to them. And uh, verse 44, nevertheless... In their presumption, that's, that's a great phrase, right? They presumed upon God. They went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp, which is part of how they're led in battle. They bring the, the box with the precious things of their faith, the ark of the covenant. And of course, Moses should be there leading them, but they don't go. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. And there, in Deuteronomy, there's, there's a sentence that describes this battle. It's in Deuteronomy 144. It says, they came out against you and chased you like bees. So have you ever been chased by bees? Do you know what that looks like, right? What you look like when you're being chased by bees. That's what they looked like when they're running away. And uh, so they make this huge false assumption. They assume God would change his mind and uh, ignore what he just told them. And they, they just assume that God's going to lift his discipline on them. And that's, that's this part of Moses' life. And I know that you're sitting there and you're like, okay, that, that's a lot. That just happened. How do we process that? And, you know, it's great that those things happened 3,500 years ago in the Bronze Age to God's people. But, you know, here we are in 2023, and we're not spying out the land, right, looking for giants. I mean, you may have been living at Orange County one time, and you came out to the Temecula Valley to spy it out, right, to, to look at what housing was like. Or maybe you were checking out the school districts. So what in the world could we learn from this part of their history? Well, here's the big idea. There's many big ideas, you know. I often, you know, like this is my kind of thing. I'll stop somewhere and say this is a big idea today. Um, and you, may, you might have a bigger idea or a different idea. That, that's, that's totally cool. But um, this is my big idea. You know, the people of faith are called to live by faith. People of faith are called to live by faith. And this event in the history of the Israelites, it helps us. It helps us understand more fully what it means to live by faith. 
It demonstrates to us or exposes the fact that you can be a person of faith, but not live by faith. And we can see the consequences or the blessings of both. So first of all, let's talk about what it means to live by faith. You might have heard that phrase before. You know, Hebrews 10.38 says, The righteous shall live by faith. Uh, the King James Version says, The just shall live by faith. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith? Does it mean do risky stuff? Does it mean swim in shark-infested waters? Or go headlong into a battle without manpower or resources? Or does it mean... Uh, Decide to be a missionary in communist Russia without any training. Just go, get on a, train, a boat or a plane. Or does it mean spend money you don't have, trusting God that he's going to like, you know, make it all appear for you? It can mean any of those things, right? But if we interpret this event simply as two guys advocated for taking big risks and uh, not playing it safe, then we miss the point. Uh, and I have, I have some thoughts about what it means to live by faith today. Number one, li living by faith means to place my full trust in Jesus Christ. My full trust in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So living by faith, I know this is so basic, but like stick with me. I'm going to make it harder as we go. Um, it begins with this simple acknowledgement of belief in Jesus Christ. And you cannot live by faith until you've done that. Uh, you might have heard this word before, gospel. It means good news. The good news is that nobody is so far from God that God's love can't reach them. And it also means that nobody is so awesome that they don't need God's love in their life, God's grace to save them because we're sinners. That's what, the, that's what the Bible calls us. That's what God calls us. And we don't like that word. Um, and I can think of some nicer words to say it, but like we're broken people, every one of us. We have sin. And that separates us from God, but God loves people so much. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He sent his son Jesus to take on our sin. Um, and if, if you have not done that in a, an explicit and conscious way, you cannot live by faith. I know that some of you are raised in Christian homes and you've always believed in Jesus. There are many of us that weren't. Like I, I wasn't raised in a church going home at all. And so I have like kind of like this dramatic conversion, you know, angels didn't come down or anything, but I, I can remember that I can tell you the day that I did it, September 24th, 1972. I've told that story so many times I won't tell it again. But um, I decided that day to believe in Jesus. So living by faith, it begins by actually having faith in the eternal, omnipotent, and creative God. That's where it starts. But that's not all. Living by faith also means to believe that true joy comes as a result of pursuing God and the life he has for me. 
And I'm going to go back to part B. I'm going to go back to Hebrews 11 again, but verse 6, but look at part B. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what does that mean? What it means is that you and I will never be able to understand what it means to live by faith until you actually believe that living according to that belief is the life that you're really after. That's what it means to live by faith. And then it, it's, the same thought is repeated in part B of Hebrews 10:38. But my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. We live by faith, but God, God says the life that you want is in following me wholeheartedly, believing that. And, and it's like, it's not good to shrink back from that. So it's in part B of both of these verses that there's a separation that happens. And it's what this event in the life of the Israelites reveals. There's a difference of ha in, in having faith and living by faith. And it's a big, big difference. We see that in the 12 spies, the 10 and 2, right? We see that it's possible to be a person of faith who does not live by faith. If we could just restate the dilemma that the Israelites faced. They were, they were free from slavery. And clearly God has led them to this point, right? And now they're at the place that they're supposed to be at the time that they're supposed to be at it. A, God, a place that God has specifically taken them to. He's led them all the way. And what's more, he's promised this to them. But it's not going to be easy. And now in this point of their lives, they're faced with taking a step that's out of their comfort zone. And they all feel that discomfort that comes with it. Did you notice that as we read the text, the different passages, uh, that among the ten who went into the land, the bad spies, uh, they never mentioned God. They only mentioned the obstacles. The land flows with milk and honey, but the people are powerful. Cities are large and fortified. They're stronger than us and will be devoured. So their conclusion, of course, is, well, we should go back. Uh, to our old lives, and we should pick a new leader who does what we want him to do. But Caleb and Joshua, they see the same things. They see all the obstacles, they see the challenges, but they draw a different conclusion. Verse 30 of Numbers 13, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Are they just braver? Or are they more predisposed to risk? They're more comfortable with like letting it hang out, going for it? Are, are they just irresponsible? No. They, they have a different, con they arrive at a different conclusion because their thinking process involves something that the others doesn't. It's their trust in God. And that's prominent in their lives. Verse 8, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Yeah, they got powerful armies. Yeah, there's a lot of bad things that can happen, but their protection is gone. The ten can only see from an earthly or worldly perspective. They can only see the resources that are available to them like 
like from the, 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 like just the normal world. There's power, numbers, strongholds, and strengths. And that victory for them can only be achieved through those worldly means. So they have limited solutions. So in their mind, there's no way that they could be victorious in this venture. But Caleb and Joshua, they, they say, we see it too, but we have one other factor. The Lord is with us, therefore we can certainly do it. Ten are motivated by fear. Joshua and Caleb are motivated by faith. You know, a lot has been made about faith over fear over the last few years. And some of that, honestly, is just theological carelessness. We can't reduce the Bible to like little slogans, you know. Faith doesn't eliminate common sense or caution. But living by faith means to think with a renewed mind. It requires a renewed mind. You've, you've, have you heard the phrase or like the concept of like there's left brain and right brained people? Well, there's, there's another category, faith brained. Some people are faith brained. Romans 12:1 said, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says here that we must present our whole selves to God, not conforming to the pattern of the world, but allowing God to transform our minds, allowing God to change the way we think. And the result of that is that we find his good and pleasing and perfect will. And I think that this is a major difference between being a person of faith and being one who's able to live by faith. Because in this, in this event, this part of their history, they're all people of God, right? They're all God's people. They're the Israelites. But they're divided over this issue of what it means to live by faith. So when we're faced with dilemmas or obstacles or facing giants in the land or what seem to be insurmountable odds often, we have to ask ourselves, what do we believe about God? Do we believe that the only way to be victorious, to, to achieve success, is to measure matters the same way the world does? To look at, at, at our problems in the same way that someone who doesn't have faith does. Do we just cave? Do we just give up? Are we tempted in that moment to act and live just like someone who doesn't have faith? Or do we continue to trust God and his word? So... I think a good question, almost like a gut check for all of us, is what, what does it mean for me to live faith-brained? Like, what does that mean in your marriage? To live faith-brained. You know, like when you're really in the middle of a struggle? Is, is that a moment to live out your faith? Or what about 
you know, what you do with your spare time. You know, do we, do we choose the way we live because of our faith? Or do we choose it separated from what we say we believe? What about in your finances? The way you spend your money and handle your money. Is it, is it being motivated by faith? You're a person of faith. But does, does how, is the way we handle our resources, does that reflect that we believe in God and that his way is going to take us to the place that we want to be in spite of what are some of the challenges in front of us? And there's another thing I'd like to bring out from this event when it comes to living by faith. Living by faith means to reflect God's character even in the face of opposition. Which, by the way, without a renewed mind is totally impossible because you won't have any idea what that means. But look at Moses in the, in the, middle, in the midst of this, this mutiny that's going on and people wanting to overthrow his leadership. What's on his mind? When... when uh, when the mob is shouting, let's bag this guy. Um, let's stone him and get rid of him. And God is offering to bring his wrath on his behalf in their defense. Moses prays to God and he says, well, if, what will the Egyptians say about you? And so he's, he's, what he's doing, he's, he's He's reminding God, but he's also reminding himself that part of what he does in this moment is to reflect the image of God in the people, to the people that he's leading. Uh, Numbers 14, 17. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. In other words, God, there, there must be a way for us to reflect your image, your character, to the people present here and to demonstrate your loyal love. And he's, remember, he's under extreme pressure and concern for his own life, right? But doesn't it seem like the main thing on Moses' mind is God's image in the world? Remember what we talked about when we went through the Ten Commandments that to not take the Lord's name in vain means to care, don't carry his name. Don't pick up and carry his name in a way that isn't in keeping with who he is. And again, you see God's people responding very differently. Responding out of fear, out of disappointment, potential jeopardy, uh, potential danger to them. One is a worldly response. That even though they're people of faith, it doesn't look like faith, Right? The other is a faith response. One brings unity. One divides. One keeps godly leadership in place and the other undermines that godly leadership. And so when we, when we think about the dilemmas we face today, I, I think that you know, I look across this room and I, I know that you guys are all living real life like I am and things are coming up in your life and they're challenges. They seem like giants. They seem insurmountable. And you're asking yourself, you know, what, what, what am I to do in this situation? Some of you are, you know, what are you most afraid of right now? What is it, when I say that, 
What's the biggest fear that comes to your mind? What's the biggest disappointment you've experienced in your relationship with God? Or where are you feeling most vulnerable in this world? And it's, it's in that we have the opportunity to respond from our faith and our trust in God. And when we do that, what we do is we allow God to show up in our lives in ways that we never imagined that he would. That if we don't give God his place, then he won't show up. Not in a way that he could. That's what we see coming out of this story. Last, living by faith, and I think this all ties in, um, results in a vastly different but preferred future. I'm going to ask the band to come up right now as I just kind of like wrap this up. How, how different is the outcome for, the, for these two groups of people in this story? You know, God's people, the, the main party of people, they reject God. It's like, they, I don't think they want to, but they allow their fear to take over and that creates like, like a situation where they can't really trust God in that moment. For what God, They're not going to obey God in this thing that's challenging them. And they, they fail to believe him. And they choose, even though they're people of faith, they choose unfaith, right? And in contrast, you have Joshua and Caleb and, of course, Moses, who they choose with all the fears that are rattling around in their minds and their hearts, they choose faith. They choose to trust God. And you know, I don't know about you, but like, it doesn't look like that would be easy to do in that situation. When I talk negatively about the Israelites, it's not like, oh, these guys are such losers and I would be awesome in that situation. I'd be right there whining with everybody else. No doubt about it. So would you, by the way. So, so think about this. What did they all really want? They all wanted, they escaped Egypt. They wanted to be in the place that God wanted them to be, a place that he had designed for them, a place where they could flourish and they could worship God openly and live by his precepts. And yet the outcome's so different. Some of them just wander around in the desert for another 39 years. And think about this. Think about how faithful Joshua and Caleb were. They had to do it because the other people did it. They had to wear that yoke too. They had to live by faith for another 39 years when it wasn't easy. And it wasn't even their fault. But after 40 years, they entered the land. They enter the land with their families, their children. And for whatever time they have left on earth, they experience everything that they had dreamed of, everything that God had said he would do. And their, their, their entire future was based on that decision to choose faith and to live, to, to place their trust in God in a ways that probably seemed unreasonable at the time. And the, I think the question is, and like, I'm going to land this plane, trust me. Um, the question here is that 
You're like, yeah, we get it, Bray. We get it. Can we just sing our songs and go home? Uh, don't tell me if the dolphins are losing right now, by the way, or winning. Um, what do we want our future to look like? Do we want a place where we, we know we're in God's will and we know that God's, the, the, the path is open for God to bless and to lead us? That's what we want as people of God. And so in these crisis moments where we're faced with that choice, uh, we have to choose faith. We have to believe it and not just believe it, but we got to live it. Let's stand and worship. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.